invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke. We're in Luke chapter 13. We're finishing up verses 10 through 17 this morning, and I've titled this message this morning, Dead Religion. Dead Religion. We're in Luke chapter 13. Uh, We began to look at this account last week in the beginnings of this conflict that started to brew as Jesus healed a woman who had been been bent over for 18 years, and he did it on the Sabbath. Now, we saw from the earlier accounts in Luke that this was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath to preach and teach the Word of God. We saw that in Luke chapter 4. And if we were going to actually continue on from Luke into Acts, we would see that very same pattern being followed by the apostles as well in the birth of the early church. What Jesus began, the apostles continued, and that is to go into the synagogues on the Sabbath and to proclaim the word of God and proclaim the kingdom of God. After Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, he would be, come to be known as Paul. And he began to preach Christ in the synagogues of Damascus in Acts 9, chapter, or verse 20. Being sent by the Holy Spirit, Paul, he preached Christ in the synagogue of Salamis in Acts 13.5 and Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13.14. In Acts chapter 14, verse 1, we see Paul entered a synagogue in Iconium and preached the word of God so that a large number of Jews and Greeks believed that day. Acts 17.1, Paul enters a synagogue on three consecutive Sabbaths in Thessalonica, and it says that he reasoned with them and explained to them from the Scriptures about Jesus Christ. In Acts 17.10, he entered the synagogue in Berea, and he reasoned with the noble-minded ones there from the Scriptures about Jesus being the Christ. In Acts 17.17, again, entered a synagogue in Athens to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. In Corinth, Acts 18.4, went into a synagogue the Sabbath day to try and persuade both Jews and Greeks. Acts 19.8, he comes to Ephesus, and there he boldly spoke for three months in the synagogue about the kingdom of God. Even if we were were to go to the book of James, which is believed to be the first New Testament book written uh, about 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, James uses that same word for synagogue in James 2.2 when he cautions the believers about showing personal favoritism to the wealthy who would come in and worship with them. So we can see that the documented history of the early church was birthed out of the synagogue because that's where the believers would go to gather, to hear the Word of God, to learn about the Word of God, and to be taught the Word of God. You didn't have your own personal scroll to take home with you that had a copy of the Torah on it because it was just way too expensive to do so. In fact, access to your own personal copy of the Word of God would be restricted until about the 16th century. We see that with what is known as what's called the Great Bible, in which the Bible was literally chained to the lectern or the pulpit at church. It had a huge chain on it to prevent people from coming in and stealing it for their personal use, which was also where it gets its nickname, the Chained Bible. But if you wanted to hear the Word of God, 
and you were a faithful Jew, you would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. You would hear the Shema, which is basically a confession of faith. And it begins like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a monotheistic declaration that there is but one God as compared to the polytheistic religions of the world that were around them at the time. You would hear a prayer offered to God. You would hear scripture readings from the law and the prophets. You would hear a sermon, which would be an exposition of the scriptures. And we see Jesus doing that beautifully when he read Isaiah chapter 4, or Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, rather. And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then afterwards, they would have a benediction. So this whole time, this whole gathering within the synagogue would be just full of Scripture. It's the written revelation of God to mankind. But that's where we find Jesus last week, teaching in the synagogue. So I want to read these seven verses together so that we can have them fresh on our minds and on our hearts and see what else the Lord has to say to us today. I want to invite you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, to do so at this time. We're in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. God's inspired and inerrant word says this, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him, and he said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done By him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time and just pray that we would not only take what we learn here, Lord, as knowledge, but we would take it and apply it in our lives. That we would not be just hearers of the word, but we would also be doers. Help us to focus in on you this very hour, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as we just mentioned, we find Jesus on the Sabbath teaching from the synagogue, as was his custom. But as he's teaching, he sees this woman who has bent over in two, and she comes hobbling into the synagogue. A woman who, by all appearances, would have been excused from our modern times from coming to church. But she had been that way for 18 years. 18 years of disfigurement, pain. Scorn from the other Jews because they would have thought, surely she was that way because of some sin in her life. But for 18 years, she's just in this sad, pitiful, physical state. She lived in a, in a constant posture of humility, 
with her face bowed low down to the ground. As one commentator put it, he said, she walked as if she was constantly looking for a grave. And quite possibly, she might have thought those thoughts in her mind several times. She was always downward, always facing towards the ground. And yet, here this remarkable woman comes into the synagogue to hear the Word of God. But then Jesus sees her. She didn't take the initiative to come to Him, but our Lord sees her and He calls out to her. Just as in the account of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 20, it says that while the son was still far off, a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion for him. So too with this woman, even though most people would have just maybe ignored her and had her isolated in a corner, Jesus sees her and He calls her over to Himself. And He says, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And then He touches her and He heals her completely to where she's able to stand up and walk upright again. She's a brand new woman. Our compassionate Christ, the only one who has ever fulfilled the law perfectly by loving God fully with all of His heart and all of His mind and all of His soul and all of His strength, He also loved His neighbor as Himself. And He reached out to this woman with a word and a touch and He healed her of this long, painful state that she had been in. This sickness was caused by a spirit, is suddenly vanquished from her body, and she is erected back up to her full height. And beloved of God, if Jesus Christ be our example, if we are to be imitators of God, as it says in Ephesians 5.1, if we are to walk in His ways in obedience, I wonder how many of us need to do the exact same thing. Now certainly, we're not here to tell you that you need to tell demons to go away because we're never ever told to do that in Scripture. And aside from the apostles given the authority to cast out demon by Jesus Christ Himself, there's no biblical command for you to bind Satan or cast out demons by command or practice. And if you ever hear someone telling you that they've bound Satan or they're going to bind Satan, I need you to do two things for me. First of all, I want you to tell them, don't let go of him. Hold on to him. If you can bind Satan, grab a hold of him. The second thing I want you to do is give me a phone call. Let me know immediately so I can tell all these other pastors and all these other churches in our area that that church over there has him. Okay? We're never told in Scripture to bind demons and and cast out Satan. But what I mean by saying, and, and how many of us need to do the same thing, is this. How many of us need to display compassion to those around us? How many of us are, uh, need to use our words to lift people up rather than tear people down? How many of us need this dramatic heart change in the way we speak to our spouses, in the way we speak to our children, in the way we speak to our parents? Do you avoid people that look downtrodden or, or discouraged, and, and, or do you have a heart of compassion? A compassion like that of our Lord Jesus Christ who sees them and reaches out to them. My daughter told me a story of her experience in a nursing home, and she can tell you these if she would like to at lunchtime, but she talked about a woman who was in her 40s, crippled, couldn't move, and couldn't really communicate, shake her head yes and no. And when she asked her, 
which shirt would you like, red or blue? You could see her face light up that someone would care enough to ask her what color shirt she wanted to wear. Everybody else, all these other people that worked in there, they went and grabbed her clothes, threw it on her, grabbed this, and it was making her visibly upset. But when she was just asked a simple question, what color shirt can I get you? She lit up. She was delighted that somebody would have such compassion on her for something so simple. And just like this woman here is is in our text, she's doubled over physically. There are a whole mess of people in this world that are doubled over within their hearts spiritually and emotionally and with all other kinds of encumbrances. There are a whole lot of people that are bent over, if you will, with anxiety and bent over with worry and bent over with fear and sorrow and sin and constantly assaulted with so many other things. But how many of us who are walking in the Spirit, who are well-nourished in the words of faith, need to come alongside and, and lift up and encourage and spur on and invigorate the faith of those who are downcast and discouraged? Do you know anyone like that today? Galatians 6.2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In other words... We who are strong in the faith are to come alongside and help bear the heavy load so that, so that many people in this world just seem to be caring, and we need to help them. That's what this bearing of the load means. And this isn't an option for you as a Christian. This is a duty in which you actually manifest the love of God in your life. This should be a centerpiece displayed on the table of your Christianity. Every act of compassion, every act of mercy that you do on behalf of your fellow believers is a fulfillment of the law of Christ and therefore a very practical means by which you display God's love. And certainly our compassionate Christ reached out and did that to this woman. He loved this daughter of Abraham, as she's called in verse 16, with such a compassion and with a tender heart that if no one else in the world was going to reach out to her and speak to her, certainly the Lord Jesus Christ would. And He's going to heal her of her infirmity. And beloved, this is our great hope, is it not? One day, the miracle that Jesus Christ performed in this woman, He's going to perform in all of us. Whatever physical weakness we may suffer from, whatever we're fighting, whatever disability we may have, whatever it is that we are suffering from in this life, Jesus Christ will come once again to you and tell you that you are freed from whatever ails you. And your body is going to be resurrected into this glorious, perfect body without any deformity, without any blindness, without any sickness, without any disability, without without any sin, hallelujah, and you will be delivered to glory for all eternity. The same radical transformation that we see here in this woman's body, God promises to do the same in the resurrection for those who are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait our Savior, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
whom will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory. Now, as we sort of kind of pick up where we left off in verse 13 last week, I want you to notice one other thing with this woman's immediate reaction to her being healed. It says in verse 13 that she began glorifying God. This, once again, gives us an insight into this woman's heart. It was Charles Spurgeon that once said, The greater our present trials, the louder will our future songs be, and the more intense our joyful gratitude. After suffering this trial for 18 years, this woman, she cannot hold back. Immediately, she starts giving praise to God. The floodgates of adoration and the thanksgiving to the God that she serves are now opening up and coming out from her mouth. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, For out the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And then immediately, the fruit of her lips was evidence of that which filled her heart. It revealed that she did, in fact, have a prayerful heart. It, in fact, revealed she had a yearning heart, a heart of gratitude. She recognized the source of her healing, and immediately she started glorifying God. And it revealed that, despite of the suffering that she endured for 18 years, glorifying God with her lips naturally erupted from her heart. It exposes the innermost part of her being and that she has a heart of thankfulness to God. Because that is one of the surest ways that you and I can glorify God is by being thankful to Him. Thomas Brooks said that thankfulness to God is like taking the crown off our head and setting it on the head of our Creator. It's a grace that gives God supremacy in our hearts, our thoughts, our desires, our words, and our works. And if there is one group of people on this earth that should be the most thankful of all, it should be those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 30 verse 4 says that we should sing praise to the Lord, you godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So here again, people are always curious, what's the will of God? What, it's right here in Scripture. It's not mysterious. It's that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the will of God for you is to be thankful in everything. In fact, your thankfulness to God should actually exceed your prayers to Him. And you might say, well, what on earth do you mean by that? I want you to think about the things that you pray for and the things that you ask God for. How many of them could you write down right now? How many needs could you come up with? And I'm not talking about your wants, but I'm talking about needs for your soul. Could you write down 10, maybe 20? Could you come up with 50 if I give you a week to write down all of the needs that you feel like you need to pray to God for right now? Now, let's do a ledger on the other side. I want you to think about how many things you could write down in thankfulness and gratitude to God. Think about how many mercies God has extended to you, both temporal and spiritual. 
How many infinite number of graces has He given to you and will give you in the future? Think about the abundant blessings that you have received from your loving Heavenly Father. Think about the forgiveness that God has extended to you over and over and over again, even just this week. Think about the magnitude and the depth and the height and the width of the love of God that flows freely from His heart. Think about the greatness of His sacrifice in which He gave up His Son, His only begotten Son for you, so that you could someday be with Him. And time would fail me if we didn't talk about His promises, His covenants, His assurances, His loving kindness, His peace, His attributes. We have an infinite number of things in which we can be thankful for because they come to us from an infinite God. There should never be anything in this world such as a thankless Christian. We have a multitude of things by which we should give the fruit of praise and thankfulness from our lips, and thus we glorify God by doing so. Are you a thankful person this morning? Is your heart full of gratitude for all that the Lord has forgiven you and brought you through? When was the last time that you just stopped and you thanked the Lord for His provisions and His graces and His mercies? You want to glorify God? Then start thanking Him for all that He's done for you and all that He's promised for you. I want you to notice next the callousness of man. We've been working through, if you listened from last week, the character of a woman the compassion of Christ, and now the callousness of man that begins in verse 14. Verse 14 says, But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Unbelievably, Here's this man who is not happy that this woman is healed. And to put it mildly, because the word for indignation here means that he is greatly displeased. It's rubbed him the wrong way. For you horse people, he's got a burr in his saddle, okay? But he's not liking what he sees here because all of this is done on the Sabbath. As R. Kent Hughes put it this way, he said, This guy, he's just a slab of ecclesiastical granite. He's as cold as he can be. Because here is a man who is in charge of this synagogue, who oversees the worship of God, yet he has no eye for the miracle of God that he just witnessed and being able to see the beauty of Jesus Christ's compassion. He has no ear to hear the song of praise and the thankfulness to God that is coming from this woman's lips. He has no heart for this poor woman's plight for these 18 long years. This guy, he would be a pastoral iceberg. He could care less that this woman is singing praises to God. He could care less about her being healed after all this time. And I want you to notice something very glaring here in this text. And that is this. Signs and wonders do not produce salvation. Saving faith does not come from a miracle witness. There is a whole segment of our culture that 
that parades itself as being Christian, that is into this mystical, experiential, we've got to have signs and wonders in our service, or God didn't show up, that is not leading millions of people to God, but it's leading people to more and more signs and wonders. Signs and wonders never produce salvation in anyone. The only thing that produces salvation in anyone is the Holy Spirit who comes to those by penitent faith. And that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the gospel. Mystical experiences, supposed signs and wonders, people putting feathers in their HVAC systems and then turning on the fan and calling it the glory of the Lord is never going to produce salvation in anyone. And I can show you the video in case you want to see that, okay? But this text is just one of the glaring proofs of that. The miracle was undeniable because the synagogue official saw it. He knows she's been healed because he tells her, Look, come back another day. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Come some other time. This revealed the deadness of his religion. Because if he did not love his neighbor as himself, if this was evidence that he could not possibly love God. Galatians 5.14 says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you have to wonder if it would be any different if he had to walk a mile in her shoes. Would he, would he have the same reaction if it happened to him? Would he not want to be healed on that Sabbath day himself if he had to walk over, bent over double for 18 years? But this guy, he loved formalism more than the freedom that this woman enjoyed. He loved the ceremony and the decorum rather than the deliverance. He loved the ritual more than the relief brought to this daughter of Abraham. In a word, he wanted to just go through the motions. And do we not have to guard ourselves in this as well? Do we not have to constantly watch over our hearts that we are not just coming to church week after week after week and checking the box, but that we are coming to be with God's people, to sing His praises, and to hear His word? In a word, do we not have to watch that we are going through the motions on a Sunday morning, but that we have to remind ourselves that we are coming here to worship the living God? Then in verse 15 and 16, our Lord rebukes him. It says in verse 15, But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall? And lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So what Jesus was doing is is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Because the Mishnah, the regulations for what constituted work for an animal, they were very, very kind to the animals. And remember, that Mishnah was just a running commentary on the Torah, the law of God, right? The Mishnah explained all the Old Testament laws in very minute details. And the Sabbath regulations written, they, were, they made the day so burdensome to everybody. They were wearisome. 
that it became nearly impossible to keep all the regulations on the Sabbath day. And we talked about this before, when, when you had to walk more than two miles on the Sabbath. And what they would do is they would cheat the system. And they would pack a lunch, and they would go two miles from their home and put the lunch, and they would lay a board across where they were going to walk through. And they would say, that's my gate. That's my two-mile gate of my property, because I'm allowed to go two miles beyond that. And so they would just do these types of things in order to religiously, ceremoniously not break the Sabbath. But for animals, you weren't allowed to place a yoke on its neck or, or put a saddle cloth even on its back. Donkeys, they weren't allowed to go out with a bell around their neck, even if you were going to plug it up and stuff something in there to keep it from annoying the thing, right? You were prohibited from tying and untying knots on the Sabbath because that it constituted work, and you would be breaking the fourth commandment. But you could untie your knot only if you were going to lead your animal out to get a drink of water. But then when you went to go get your drink of water, you were not allowed to hold the bucket to water the animal. You were, however, allowed to draw the water up out of the well, pour it into the trough, and allow the animal to drink. This is how minute of details they got in trying to establish what is work on the Sabbath and what is not. And so Jesus says, you know what? You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. He says, you've got a double standard. In other words, what he is saying here is this, is that how is it that you can tend to the basic needs of your animals on the Sabbath, but you have heartache over the basic needs of a human being being healed on a Sabbath day? How is the fourth commandment of Exodus chapter 20 and remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy being broken by this woman's healing? Because technically, Jesus didn't do any work. All he did was speak to her and touch her, and none of that was prohibited. And so he asked them, is that, how can you be kind to animals, but you can't be kind to one of your own? A daughter of Abraham. And so this synagogue's officials, his complaint in reality... It's an attack on the character of God. Could not God be merciful on the Sabbath day? Must He be restrained for that particular day? Could not God extend His compassion and demonstrate His loving kindness to one of His own children even on the Sabbath? Should Satan be allowed to triumph in this woman's life for even just one more day? Is not the Sabbath the day that is supposed to be holy and and set apart for God, the day above all days in which the works of the devil should actually be torn down and destroyed? Remarkably, the the synagogue official's heart revealed that he believed the answer was no and that she should come back another day. Jesus says to him, he says, you're a hypocrite. But the results of those questions that Jesus presented to this synagogue official and those who supported him left him speechless and hanging their head in defeat. It says in verse 17, as he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And so the results of these questions that Jesus asked created a division. The crowd's were with Jesus on that day. And they rejoiced over Him and all the things that He was doing. And yet the Pharisees, and those who held on to their dead religion, went away with their heads down in shame. No contrition, no repentance, 
No humility, just holding on to their works and their dead religion. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no fence-sitters in the kingdom of God. You are either all in for Jesus Christ and resting on His finished work at the cross and trusting in His righteousness, or you are trusting in your dead religion of your own works and your own righteousness. You can't have it both ways. Either Christ is mighty to save you and to heal you from your wounds of sin, or you are trusting in your works and your performance and your rule-keeping. Is your heart thankful this morning? How much, beloved, do we have to be thankful to God for? Are you glorifying God with your life? Because He has removed that burden of sin that was weighing you down and and keeping you doubled over and keeping you from seeing Him. Do you have a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for our great God and Savior this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about what Christ has come to do on our behalf, that He was pierced through, that He was crushed, and it pleased You to do so, that You have gladly given us the kingdom. Lord, it is so hard for us to grasp hold of that truth and live it in our hearts, God. So too often we look at our performance we look at our works. We look at the things that we doing, we are doing and we say, ah, that is what we should stand before God for. But may it never be God in our hearts. Let us always look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us always look to what He has accomplished for us on our behalf, God. Help our hearts to be full of gratitude and thankfulness for these great things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.